Welcome or welcome back, podcast whores. You're listening to Horse for Whore. And before we jump into this week's episode, we actually have a little change up in our schedule to celebrate October. October, the best month of the year. Our holy season. Okay, so originally we were going to finish out the Did They Do It series with my case of Darlie Routier. However, she's got a lot going on. (laughs) So we're going to push her to November and we might have to do a two, maybe even a three-part series for her. So if anyone's interested, check back in in November for Darlie Routier. But for October, we're doing all kinds of hauntings and spooky shit. And just downright gross crimes. Weird stuff. Like the month of October. But when this comes out, it's going to be October 1st. So, welcome everybody to the best season of the year. No, wait. To the best month of the year. It's basically a whole season, so. It is. It is. What do they say? Halloween season. Spooky season. Or haunting season. Yeah, it's definitely spooky season. Okay, Kayla, she's the only one doing a case because she decided to change up the schedule without me. Oh my god, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I did it. <laughs> Sorry. I just want to do Darlie Routier's case justice and like give everybody the enough information to decide for themselves if she's guilty or not or if she deserves a new trial. I know the Cameron Todd Willingham case was actually really fucking stressful cuz I was like, what if I, you know, cuz That New Yorker article is so fucking long. And if you guys haven't checked out that episode yet, go back and check it out because it's really detailed. But the article I mainly source from is even longer. And so I was like, if I leave this out, are people still going to be able to make a judgment call? Uh, It was so stressful. (laughs) Uh, No, I agree. I'm feeling that stress. So this week we are going to do, you're going to love it. It's called the Velisca Axe Murders. I know this case. No, you don't. I do. Are you serious? <laughs> no. It's okay. okay well, it's got, a good one. <laughs> I've got more to it, so. Okay. It's okay. All right, so we'll get right into it. So the story behind the Velisca Axe murders, and this was in Iowa. Velisca, Iowa. Shout out Velisca. Levi, because he's from Iowa. Oh, yeah, he is. So, Land of yeah. corn. <laughs> I think that's their biggest crop. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I can't imagine anything else coming out of Iowa other than hurricanes over land, apparently. Maybe wheat? Do they have wheat? No, it'd probably be corn and soybeans because those are rotational crops. Uh, Let's look it up. Okay, now I any... have to know. You go on. <laughs> okay, so the backstory is Josiah B. Moore was 43 at the time. His wife, Sarah Montgomery Moore, was 39 at the time. And they had four children, ages 5, 7, 10, and 11. Okay, it is corn. (laughs) It's corn and soybeans. I was right. Just have to tell you guys that. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) I'm back. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so on the day in question, the family attended a children's day service at their local church on the evening of June 9th, 1912. The family also brought along their neighbor's children named Lena and Ina Stillinger. And this their ages were eight case. and twelve. Oh yeah. I guess I didn't realize how old it is. Mm-hmm. So the, the social gathering ended around 9.30 that night, and the family and the neighboring children walked the three blocks back home, enjoyed some milk and cookies, and then they all went to bed. So the two little girls, the neighboring little girls, stayed over. Okay approximately around midnight sometime after midnight an intruder or intruders entered the the home after picking up the family axe from the backyard both adults and all children were murdered in their sleep with the blunt end of the family's axe and it's weird that they didn't bring their own murder weapon yeah they used they just picked up the family's axe yeah But apparently back in that time, a lot of, like, an axe was just, like, common. Yeah, I don't think they have, like, gas stoves. Yeah, I guess it's, like, the equivalent of picking up a butcher knife. Yeah. In today's society. Please don't. 
go pick up a butcher knife and murder people. Like, that's Don't not what I'm me. suggesting. Just in case you guys got confused there. I'm just trying to say it was common. Okay, so at approximately 7.30 the following morning, an elderly, elderly neighbor named Mary Peckham was concerned that the Moore house was just too quiet. 7.30 in the morning, ma'am. Peckham, is that a name on the um, Salem Witch Trials? I don't know. Oh, could be totally know. wrong. <laughs> I'm not even going to look it up because I already, my, you know, fatal flaw of always being right has already shown once, so I'm not even going to look it up this time. That's the title of this episode. Villisca Axe Murders <laughs> Related to the Salem Witch Trials. <laughs> so the neighbor was concerned because she thought the house was too quiet. She called Mr. Moore's brother, Ross Moore. Ross arrived at the home at 8 a.m., and looked around, and he found two figures downstairs covered with a sheet. And he saw blood on the bedstand. So Ross called the local hardware store where his brother Josiah worked and told a fellow employee to get Marshal Henry Hank Horton. Henry Hank Horton. <laughs> HHH. Oh, I guess HH Holmes. <gasps> Ooh, we've done it. We have made all the connections this, this Just time Just off around. by, you know, a few years <laughs> so ross quoted that something quote terrible had happened end quote mm. that just tells you like the time he calls where his brother the victim works to tell a different employee to go get the marshal yeah no okay so the marshal arrived at about eight thirty in the morning and then went through the house to find that every single person had been murdered in their beds there was a partially cleaned murder weapon still on the scene, and the killer also left, awkwardly, a four-pound slab of bacon leaning against the wall next to the murder weapon. Yum. Like somebody explain this. <laughs> I love bacon. It was also determined that the killer had searched through the drawers to get clothing items used to cover all the mirrors and glass in the doorways. So this guy didn't want any reflection. The kitchen table had a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water, presumably where the killer washed his hands. You just left that shit on the table, man? Mm-hmm. Have a bowl of bloody water. <laughs> the victims were found in their beds with sheets or clothing items covering their heads, so not only did he cover all reflections, he covered their faces. They all had been beaten in the head approximately 20 to 30 times each. And, I mean, you might get to this, but how did no one else wake up, you know? I'm assuming if you're beating them at the back side of an axe, I would, you would hear some grunting. I've chopped wood before. I know I grunt. I don't know. There was speculation that this guy had done this before, like, he knew. Yeah. Because they said that, or one of the reports stated that because he used the blunt side of an axe... He knew that, or presumably he knew that if he used the sharp end, there was a potential for the sharp end to get stuck in the wound and the person next to them to wake up. Ew. You're welcome. <laughs> welcome not, to October. I don't like that. <laughs> uh, one of the neighboring children, Lena, had been left exposed other than her face. Her face was covered and her dress was up. Ew. However, no signs of sexual assault had been found. There was a blood stain on her knee and a defensive wound on her arm. So Aww. it seems like she woke up. The funeral was held on June 12th, 1912, and thousands of people showed up for the services. The funeral cortege was 50 carriages long. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you gotta think. Six Good of these them. people murdered were children under the age of 12. Yeah, and I feel like that didn't happen very often back then, so people came from yeah. all over the fucking place like, to show their respect. Yeah, and like 20 to 30 blows per person, like, if That's we're, like, it's... Let's, let's just get into, like, let's take aside reasoning. 20 to 30 blows on children? Chill, and then covering their face. Way which, overkill. It would make you think personal that they knew them only because, you know, or I listened to a lot remorse. of this shit. Yeah. 
remorse so, so they knew so, him. Yeah. Depending Ooh. on if, like, did you cover their faces prior to beating them or did you cover their faces after? I think it was after. It would have positive. to be after because they wouldn't, they would see the gashes through, like, And the if cloth. it was after, then that's remorse. They're like, oh, no, cover him up. Which coincides with this person not wanting to see his own reflection. Yeah. By covering all the glass and mirrors. You want a fun fact? Ready? Fun fact. I don't like your The fun murders. <laughs> You'll love it. The murders were considered so horrific that the headline news was previously the sinking of the Titanic. This was removed from headlines and replaced with the Velisca Axe murders. Fun fact. Oh, More so horrific they, than the Titanic. They were like, fuck the Titanic, bro. Look at yep, this The headline. Titanic sank two months prior to this happening. Wow. Yep. I guess that is old news by then, though. Nah, that's like the biggest thing that happened. They're going to keep printing it. Oh, yeah, I guess it's not 24-hour news cycle, 1912, where things yeah. come and go within three hours. Yeah. On to the next tragedy. On to the next mass shooting, everybody. Ugh. <laughs> so, let's talk about this guy named Reverend Kelly. Oh, he's supposed to be a man of God. Oh, he sure is. It's always these guys. So Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly arrived in Villisca the morning of the Children's Day program at the local church. He was also in attendance. At 5.30 a.m. the morning, technically the morning of the murders. Okay. But remember, the neighbor said it was too quiet at 7.30 a.m. So they weren't even found until 8 to 8.30. But 5.30... A.M., this reverend is on train number five, leaving Villisca westbound. So some passengers allege that the reverend told, I guess, other passengers of, quote, eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa, butchered in their beds while they slept, end quote. Uh, Sir, no one's found them yet. Yeah, no one has said anything yet, buddy. Yeah. Two weeks later, Reverend Kelly arrived back in Villisca posing as a Scotland Yard detective so he could enter the house along with other detectives. Bro, people are going to notice you immediately. What are you doing? Well, they just let him in. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, it's crazy because back then they believed people. Like, you could walk up and say, hey, you know, like three towns over, I'm this like big time sheriff. And people would be like, oh, shit, come in. Whereas today it's like... Let me Google you real quick. And so back, yeah, that's exactly how they felt back in the day. But also, this guy was from England originally. He came to this area, the United States, in 1904 with his wife. So he's going to have that English accent. Yeah. And they're gonna, they are not going to question it. They're going to be like, well, he has the accent. Must be him, right? Sure does. Let's go. <laughs> Let him in. They're like, the Titanic was removed from the newspapers, and now the Scotland Yard is here. Let's go. <laughs> Putting us on the map. (laughs) (laughs) So Reverend Kelly was a traveling preacher and had preached at churches in North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. Mm, All the boring states. (laughs) How dare you? North Dakota is great. Who lives in North Dakota? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know anyone that lives there. I know a bunch of welders that go up there, but that's about it. Yeah. God, my fucking thing updated. Now it's so hard to find my internet on my phone. I want to see if we have listeners in North Dakota. So, Reverend Kelly was also assigned as a visiting minister in small town or small communities just north of Villisca. Probably why he was in the area. Mm-hmm. In these small northern communities, the reverend had a reputation of being odd and had been convicted of sending obscene material through the mail. So basically, this obscene material was like he put some ad in the newspaper because he wanted a secretary, but he also said that the secretary should be okay with being nude and also, like, be a model. Okay. And then apparently the letters that he sent this girl were, quote, so obscene the judge wouldn't even read them. Oh my, it is this guy. This is a murderer. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with him? 
He also had a mental breakdown as an adolescent, and he spent time in a mental hospital. Okay. Reverend Kelly was indicted for Lena Stillinger's murder and interrogated in the summer of 1917. It took so long. On August 31st, the Reverend confessed to the murder, saying that God had told him to, quote, suffer the children to come unto me. Sure, buddy. I'm not sure your God should be telling children to suffer. Yes, Personal I agree. Opinion. Don't yeah. hold it against me. I, no, I agree. Yeah, uh, we won't go on my tangent that I have about that. Continue, please. I just like, w- yeah, like the this is why I, this is why I have a hard time believing in God, because I'm like, you look yeah. around and all these people are dying and children are being bombed and they're being gassed and they're starving to death. But God loves us all, right? No, I have a big problem. You can edit that out because that's a real hot take. <laughs> that is a real no, hot take. I can take. agree with you there. Like, I am totally fine with people wanting to believe in a higher power or something else yeah. going on in the universe. That's completely fine. I totally I, get it. Yeah, I, I think it. that that's true. What I don't agree with personally, I don't feel like we should all have to suffer to live. Exactly. And so don't at me when I talk about all these tragedies saying it's God, Mm. you know, God meant for this to happen. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. The God that I worship doesn't want anyone to suffer. So yeah, we should all be kind and nice and supportive and helpful. And like people shouldn't have to suffer to live. Like it's just my opinion. Nope. I agree. Anyway, (laughs) we'll end that tangent. If you agree, let us know. If you disagree, We'll agree to disagree. I could spend five hours on that tangent, so yes, we should end it. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to argue with people, but, like, let's just be supportive, you know? Yeah, uh-huh. Live and let live, bro. Yeah. I like that. Very nice. Okay. So, the Reverend later recanted his confession during his trial, and the couple who had come forward stating that the Reverend had told them of the more still injured demise during their train ride on train number five also changed their statements so whatever evidence they like kind of had against him was just falling apart a jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal on september 26 1917 so apparently whatever happened during this trial the evidence just fell on through yeah and so only one person believed he was guilty so the case is then retried and reverend kelly was officially acquitted in november of 1917 okay so something went seriously wrong bad evidence so the villisca axe murders are still unsolved Uh uh-huh now let's go into the hauntings Oh, God. Because apparently this house, the house is still around. There's even a sign in the front that says Villisca Axe Murder House. And then the current owners actually restored it to what it was back in 1912. And they allow people to stay overnight for ghost tours. You know, it's like a, maybe a bed and breakfast now. Yeah. So, in this house, children can be heard whispering, laughing, and playing within the house. (laughs) objects are moved on their own especially toys doors open and close on their own and sometimes they slam with no explanation disembodied footsteps are heard as well as disembodied voices apparitions and shadows are seen throughout the house they quickly come into view and then they suddenly disappear Rumors say that the best time to investigate this house is around 2 a.m., and this is the time that the train passes through the town of Villisca. A light fog is said to fill the master bedroom when the train whistle first blows, and then the fog is supposed to move from room to room, just as the killer did the night he bludgeoned the eight victims. Jeez, I don't like that. (laughs) The fog will then fade away to the sound of dripping blood. What the fuck? <laughs> Visitors within the Velisca Axe murder house have reported sensations of being followed throughout the hallways. In 2014, a self-proclaimed paranormal investigator was staying at the house overnight on a ghost hunt. He ended up stabbing himself in the chest 
and eventually had to be airlifted to a hospital 80 miles away. He was in the ICU. He stabbed himself? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, November 7th of 2014, Robert Stephen Larson Jr., 37 at the time, from Wisconsin, was alone in the northwest bedroom of the house. And I don't, I, I think that's the master bedroom, but I could be wrong. But he was alone. The rest of his party were outside, so they were doing that whole, I'm going to stay in the house alone and see if I can get anything. No. He called for help on his radio, and then when the group found him, Larson had been stabbed in the chest. Supposedly, it was self-inflicted, which the hospitals later confirmed, and when the police later confirmed. The group called 911, and he was taken to a nearby hospital, and then from there, airlifted to Crichton University Medical Center in Omaha. Omaha. The call to police, yeah, the call to police occurred around 12.45 a.m., and this is the time it's said that the original eight murders occurred in the home back in 1912. Spooky. Spooky. We don't know what he stabbed himself with. There wasn't information about it. Uh, we know he was in the ICU, and then he later recovered. And that is what we get from this guy. That is some intense shit. I yep. don't have... Well, how do you... Like, I would never be able to stab myself because I know it's going to hurt. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, right? Especially in the chest. Like, no, thank you. Yeah, I can't inflict pain on myself at all. Mm-hmm. So I could, I could not stab myself. Definitely not. Um, your boy, Zach Baggins. Ugh. This dude sucks. His team went there. Don't sue me. That was my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he really fucking cares. He's so rich, he doesn't care. He's probably like, who? He doesn't even know who we are. But if he did, he'd be like, who are these bitches? Like, come at me when you have 20 plus years and, like, ghost hauntings. Like, fuck off, girls. And (laughs) $5 million. And I'd be like, oh. Touche. Do you have a museum of cursed and haunted things? I don't think so. <laughs> Touche, Zach Baggins. I do like his earlier episodes of his show, though. I feel like the earlier episodes, he was, he actually enjoyed it and he wasn't trying to make money because now he's just trying to make money. Which yeah, I'm that's like, how hey, I feel too. is what it is. Me too. I'm trying to yeah. make money, hustle all the time. But we can tell. We can tell. Yeah. Yeah, in the previous ones, like, he tried to, like, get the stories and... Yeah, but now it's just, like, fight me, ghost. And I'm like, what are you doing? And then he, like, backs off so soon. Like, if you're gonna antagonize a ghost, like, just follow through. (laughs) Don't stop now. (laughs) Keep going. What are you doing? Get the story, bro. We want the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to fight me. No, wait, don't. (laughs) Yeah, we want you to get punched in the face. fight (laughs) him. So, that's the case of the Velisca Axe murder house, but we're not done. Oh, goodness. So, because this case went unsolved, it turns out that during this time, between, like, 1911 to, like, 1914, even some in the 1917s, there was a ton of axe murders. Hmm. So, we're going to go back in time a little bit, and I'm going to give you a timeline of different axe murders that people theorize is the work of a serial killer. Are they all by train tracks? Yes. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's go back in time to September 17th, 1911 in Colorado that's Springs. That's Stephen's birthday. Oh, my God. That's right. Colorado. <laughs> really? That's Stephen's birthday, and that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I did this because it said Colorado Springs, and I thought you would be unhappy with that. But the date of the death is Stephen's birthday. Yeah, two days before this is mine. meant to be. <laughs> I'm, I feel really good about this case. I don't. Okay, so Arthur J. Burnham was afflicted with. Actually, I'm so sorry, pals. I want you to see some photos. So there's the family. Do you want to see a violent and graphic photo? Of what? A crime scene. Is it in color? It's like a sepia. Okay, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. 
I, f I stumbled upon this and I was slightly mortified, but I kept it just in case. We're and not going to put this one on the Instagram. I have morbid curiosity. You ready? Yeah. Click it. Oh my god, Kayla. I thought it was just going to be like a room. Mm -mm. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Did you see that though? Yeah, I did. <laughs> that was pretty bad. That's on the that internet. Yeah, and it's not labeled as anything. I just stumbled on it and went, what the heck is that? And then I was like, oh, God. Yeah, so for the listeners, don't just Google these unless you want to stumble across a very violent crime scene. But there's just the one. So if you see one in sepia and you're just like, I don't know what that is, don't click on it unless you want to see horribleness. There should have been a label on that. Faux show. Ugh. Okay, let's go back again in time to Colorado Springs in 1911. Arthur J. Burnham was afflicted with tuberculosis and he moved his family to the Pikes Peak region of Colorado because its climate was believed to be a cure for TB. What, what? Represent Pikes Peak area? What are we called? Arthur 719? Yeah, you. <laughs> you don't even know. <laughs> I think that's the area code. <laughs> Arthur worked on the grounds at Modern Woodman Sanatorium, and his wife Alice and two children lived in a small home in the city. So this, he has TB. He works on the grounds, but he also lives there. Mm -hmm. September 20th, 1911, Alice's sister went to check on her and the children because she hadn't heard from her in a few days. Now remember, the murders happened on the 17th. Ew, those bodies are gimpy. And her sister is going to find her. Oh. Upon entering the house, which was locked, she discovered the bodies of Alice and the two children. The family had been beaten in the head with an axe on the 17th, which was a Sunday. Also of note, the murders happened in Villisca on a Sunday. Hmm. News of the crime spread and neighbors realized that the neighboring house to the Burnhams had been weirdly quiet as well. This house belonged to Henry Wayne and his wife and baby girl. Authorities checked the house and discovered three bodies with the same crushed skulls as the Burnham household. Oh my gosh. So this dude. He had was two houses like, boom, on the boom. same night. Yeah. So I say neighboring house, but it was an adjacent house. Still yeah. a neighbor, but it wasn't like right next door. Same area. Yeah. The two families had been acquainted with Henry Wayne previously living at Modern Woodman Sanatorium prior to sending for his wife and child. Henry had informed Arthur of the house next to his being vacant. And that's where his wife and babies moved. Aw, that's so sad. Dude was just trying to help him out. Yeah. The families had only been in the area for a couple of weeks and had no enemies that anyone knew of. A couple of weeks? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's not like they wronged someone already. No. Both of the houses had been locked with the blinds drawn. Sheets had been thrown on top of the bodies at both locations. In the Burnham household, the intruder stopped to wash his hands and clean up ink that he had spilled in the entrance of the home. Both homes were within walking distance of the rail railroad tracks, and the murder weapon, an axe, was also left at the scene. Yeah, sounds like the same guy. Well, it says left at the scene, but I think it was left at the lady's house that it was, which was the next door neighbor of the Burnhams. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the same guy. Mm-hmm. M-O. Sure does. So, suspects. The first suspect was, was Arthur Burnham himself, the husband. Aww. Because he was the only one of the two families that had been left alive. Arthur had been working at the sanatorium the night of the murders and had an alibi confirmed by others at the sanatorium. The sanatorium was also 12 miles away from the house and was only accessible via walking, which his tuberculosis did not allow for. His conditions, as well as his alibi, led authorities to remove him as a suspect. Arthur died four and a half months later from complications due to asthma, tuberculosis, and Bright's disease. Aw, that's sad. I really don't think he had a reason to live after that. Yeah, broken heart. Aw, that's heartbreaking. The second suspect was an Italian laborer friend of Mrs. Burnham, Tony Donatell. 
Even though he had an alibi, he was still questioned by authorities. A Denver Bertillon expert, which is an old fingerprinting and measurement system for those who don't know. Before fingerprinting came around, they would take, like, measurements of people's arms, their height, their, like, widths around, like, certain areas of their body. And they would, like, write down all these measurements. That's fucked up. Yeah, so this is before fingerprinting. So they didn't have, like, photos and stuff of criminals and everything. They just had a name, a description, and, like, these measurements. So to, like, confirm a suspect back then was just ridiculously stupid. Yeah. And I know, I know this from my degree, is that Lombroso, like, the father of criminology, would take, he would go to prison, and he would take, like, widths of people's nose, their forehead, and he'd be like, okay, well, you know, criminals have large foreheads, and it's like, no, bro, like, the justice system is just really fucked up, like, that's not, Mm. and he was like, criminals, most of them have tattoos, and most of them are black, and I'm like, no, you're just looking at the prison population, which does not represent the population of America, so, like, no. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, I think he was, like, twisting the Bertillon system, like, Hmm. he was using it and then twisting it, like, trying to be the first criminal profiler, like, you're dumb, dude. It's not it's not based off how you look. Are you stupid? Yeah. But <laughs> What a dummy. And we still call him the father of criminology, isn't that wild? Yo. In Kinda my Darlie Routier case, I'm about to put someone on blast who like is the author of a lot of books that they give you in your criminal justice courses. Huh. And um yeah, turns out he's been given a lot of testimony that's not really accurate. Turns out he's a bad dude. Turns out he doesn't know how to do his job. Turns out he's a quack. (laughs) Anyway, this Bertillon expert came from Denver, and he determined that the inked print left at the scene did not belong to either Arthur Burnham or Tony Donatell. So Donatell was then released and removed as a suspect. Good. The Colorado Springs case is unsolved. Oh. Moving on. Ready? Monmouth, Illinois, September 30th, 1911. So just like a week later. Yeah. I am not positive that this is connected, but I'm going to tell you anyway. William E. Dawson and his wife Charity and daughter Georgia, who was 13, were murdered while they slept in their home. William was supposed to open the church the following morning on Sunday, October 1st, 1911. What, what? October 1st? Anyway. The day this comes out. Yeah. (laughs) So when his congregation arrived to a locked church, they went looking for him. The house had been unlocked and the blinds had been drawn. Nothing was taken from the home. Bloodhounds were used and led authorities to a bloody pipe that was determined to be the murder weapon. A piece of Dawson's perimeter fence was removed, where a flashlight was found with the words, quote, Colorado Springs. It was etched into the side. That's weird. Yeah. This led authorities to believe that the case was connected to the Colorado Springs mass axe murder a month prior. Or the month prior. Three different people were charged in the mass murder, including one black man and a black couple already serving time for theft. But did they actually do it? Probably not. Mm -mm. So I'm not sure that this one is connected because the murder weapon was different. Like, I know it was still like a blunt object, but it was a pipe instead of the back of an axe. Um, This house was unlocked. Blinds were drawn. um, And then none of these cases so far, robbery was not a motive because nothing else was taken. So they couldn't really... Do they have the sheets pulled over them? I don't know. There's not a whole lot on this case. Yeah. The most that this case goes into is, like, trying to convince you why these three black Americans were charged. Yeah. With the murder, which I don't even think they did it, really. Hmm. That's a weird case. Yep. Now, Ellsworth, Kansas. October 16th, 1911. So, two weeks later. Whoa. Mr. and Mrs. William and Pearlene Showman, both aged 33, 
And they're two girls, Leslie and Fern, ages five and one. Ooh, I love the name Fern. I like her name Perlene. Oh, I did not like that. Sounds like Praline. <laughs> Makes me angry. Oh, now I'm over it. Stop. <laughs> okay, as well as the youngest child, Fenton, the baby. So under one year. Oh. Were beaten to death in their home in Ellsworth, Kansas. The murder weapon was determined to be an axe. You're not going to like this. Trigger warning. The baby was beaten until his head was severed from his body. What the fuck? This guy has some fucking rage. Yeah. It's a baby. Yeah. Ugh. Gives me, like, chills. Like, it hurts my spine. (laughs) Yeah, and it makes you realize how, like, fucked up some humans are. Yeah. The night prior, the showman family had visited a neighboring home just a few blocks away and had returned home around 9 p.m. The neighbor, Mrs. Snook, had called the showman family home at approximately 6 a.m. the following morning. No one answered the phone, so she walked down the street and knocked on the door. When she received no answer to her knock, Mrs. Snook walked into the house seeing five battered bodies and blood all over the room. Mrs. Snook went to Mr. Showman's brother's home, John Showman, which was only two blocks away from the Showman home. So her house was like several blocks, so the closest one was his brother's. The Showmans had a watchdog who was not alerted when the intruder came into the Showman home, leading police to believe that the Showman's killer was someone close or familiar with them. The lighting used by the killer was that of an oil lamp with the chimney removed. The murder weapon was left at the scene behind the door along with the lamp. Bloodhounds were obtained the following day on October 17th, where they picked up a trail three separate times and lost it all three times at the railroad tracks. Hmm. On October 17th or 18th, I'm unsure, a bloodstained shirt was found in a hotel room of the Baker Hotel, which had been occupied the previous night for only one or two hours by an unknown person. Yeah, it definitely yeah. sounds like that whoever's doing it is, like, hopping on the train and leaving. And mm-hmm. in the first one, he left in the vis- Viscola? Villisca. Villisca. He left the murder weapon behind the door, right? Uh, or, like, at I don't the know door. exactly where he left it. He left it in the home. Oh, spooky. I assume that it was in the kitchen with the rest of the stuff, which I think was at the door. But I just with don't know if I'm just, like, bacon. assuming that. Yeah. But it's important to note, I didn't tell you this earlier, in the Velisca one, the lighting used by the murderer was an oil lamp. <gasps> With the chimney the removed? Chimney, and he likes to bend the wick so that the light, it illuminates less because they, the reports and the authorities think that he was afraid of too much light waking the family. Oh my god, that is freaking spooky. I do not like thinking about that. Yeah. Holy cow. There were two suspects for this. The first one was a man named Charles Marzik. He was a convict who had been released from prison a year prior to the murders. And when I first read this, I was like, okay, let's just blame the convict, okay? Mm -hmm. Here's why. He had once been married and divorced from Mrs. Showman's sister. Oh. Witnesses said that Charles was seen around the Showman home a week prior to the murders. Charles also could not give a good account of his whereabouts the night of the murders. He had a history of being a thief, which is why he was in jail earlier. So on June 17, 1912, Marzik was acquitted and released at his pretrial hearing due to him providing an alibi. Approximately 20 different witnesses provided a similar alibi to Marzik's, and it was decided that his alibi was actually valid. So the second man was just named Smith. Later, we found out that his name was John Smitherman. This man was said to be the unknown man who had stayed at the Baker Hotel the night of the murder, the same room where the bloody shirt had been found. Smitherman admitted to being in the area at the time of the murder, and he said that he stayed in some local hotel, but he could not remember the name of it. He did say that he did not leave any bloody clothes at his hotel. 
and after leaving the area, he left and obtained a job in Kannapolis in Salt Works. Smitherman explained to the authorities that he was unsure of his movements as he had been drinking and binging for several days and had been in, like, this drunken haze. He was on a bender. Yeah. So Sheriff John Harbs, Harbays of Junction City, told authorities that Smitherman could not have committed the murders as he was a hardworking man who had lived in Junction, Junction City for 20 years. Authorities released Smitherman when he became strong enough to travel. The police had no evidence to connect Smitherman to the murders anyway, so they mm. had to let him go. Yeah. A fingerprint expert from Topeka, Kansas, William Duckett, studied a bloody fingerprint left at the scene and stated that this print did not belong to Smitherman. Okay. Okay, so let's pause here so I can show you my pretty pictures. These are the showman kids from before. They're so cute. (laughs) Yeah, look at the baby. Yeah. Okay, ready to keep going? We're almost done. (laughs) (laughs) So the next one is Payola, Kansas. June 5th of 1912. I also don't think this one is connected, but it's part of the theory, so we're just going to cover it. Rollin Hudson, age 21, and his wife, Anna, moved to Payola, Kansas, to save their failing marriage. Rollin had told neighbors that his wife had been unfaithful and that he had intercepted letters written to her from the man she had been unfaithful with in the previous city where they lived. They constantly fought and separated while in Payola the few months that they lived there. Neighbors had become concerned and entered the Hudson home only to encounter the bodies of Rollin and Anna under a comforter beaten. They were murdered on a Wednesday. The murder weapon was never found in this case. Authorities believe the intruder came in through a window because a window screen had been removed and left against the side of the house. Hmm. It was reported that the two may have been chloroformed prior to the attack. So if that's the case... And if these cases are connected, then your previous question about why didn't people wake up, that could be it. Yeah. Hmm. That's just my own, like, weird brain jumping out at, like, different conclusions. Yeah. Nothing from the home seemed to have been taken, ruling out a robbery. A coal lamp with a chimney had been found beside the bed. Oh, sorry, without a chimney. Oh, okay. had been found beside the bed so different type of lamp but chimney removed Mm -hmm. prior to the murders a man had been asking around town about the hudson family and had even been seen at the front door of the hudson home the night of the murders this man had actually been allowed to enter the hudson home and was a person of interest in the case however this man was never found oh Mm mm-hmm Several townspeople told authorities that they saw Anna Hudson arguing with an unknown man on a local bridge the day of the murders. A threatening letter to Anna was found on the stairway of a justice's office, which had been postmarked May 27th, but nothing pertinent was found in the letter. Yeah. A Kansas City detective was hired to work the case and uncovered that the man Anna had the affair with was Roy Adams of Akron, Ohio. However, Roy was employed at a local tire shop in Ohio the night of the murders. Like, he was working overnight. Yeah. A second family in Paola was awakened the night of the murders to the sound of a lamp chimney falling inside their home. An unknown man was seen exiting the home, and a window screen was later found outside of the window. A dress that's believed to be Anna Hudson's was also found at the secondary location. Due to not having any leads, the authorities stated that they believed the axe murders from the previous crimes had also been the murderer who committed the Hudson murders. Really? It's kind of a stretch, huh? I don't. But. Okay, yes, sorry. Give me all the evidence. The lamp is kind of, the lamp is what makes me kind of think. And then the chloroform makes me think that maybe the others were chloroform, but I'm not positive. Like, it's kind of a stretch. Yeah. I just don't know how common removing a chimney is on a Right, because if, you, if your <laughs> yeah. oil lamps and your coal lamps are, like, your lighting source, it would just be kind of common knowledge that if you remove the chimney, it's not going to, like, filter yeah. the light in the direction that you want, right? So that's just kind of common. And I feel like this one is more targeted like there's clearly someone who was stalking her and in the other ones that's not 
the case. The that only we know part. Of. Yeah, and the only part that I'm kind of, that kind of makes you think, oh, could be, and maybe we just don't have all the evidence oh, yeah, from the totally other cases, could be. is because remember in Colorado Springs, two families were murdered. Mm-hmm. Well, in Villisca, apparently some witnesses stated that they heard like signs of an intruder, but like they were awakened. So. So he couldn't Nothing ever get happened. a so second family. So maybe, yeah, maybe this guy's target is two families a night. Yeah. But that's I would, a lot. I would like for it to be the same murderer because I like theories that all tie together really well. And it's like, bam, yeah. here you go. But I just don't think that this one is connected. I have to agree. And then in the timeline of events, Villisca, Iowa would have happened after this one. Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't feel like it's connected, but I'm also not a detective. So take whatever Agreed. I say with a grain of salt, you know? Agreed. So there were four other axe murders across the United States during this time that were not attributed to the same killer. Okay. As like all the above. So the reason that these weren't attributed to the same killer is because information had been distorted in the media about them. So, like, the media had tried to make it seem like every two weeks somebody was, like, getting murdered via an axe. But they had actually distorted the dates of the oh, murders in the media. That's fucked so up. So they were just, like, yeah, they were just, like, ruled out. They were just trying to sensationalize it. Like, oh, my God, read our newspaper, an axe murderer. Yep. So, um, some of the women in these other cases had been sexually assaulted, which is a method that had never occurred in the previous cases I told you about. Yeah. Another man had been convicted of one of these crimes, and, you know, people were trying to connect them all together, but the man com- um, convicted of, like, the Washington crime actually had an alibi for the Oregon one. Okay. So, like, if he did the Washington one, then they're not connected. Yeah. So, there's just some things that just don't add up with these. Here they are. So, it was Portland, Oregon. On June 8th, 1911, there were four victims. Rainier, Washington. July 10th, 1911, two victims. Mount Pleasant, Iowa. October 31st, 1911, one person was assaulted. No murders. Blue Island, Illinois. June, sorry, July 6, 1914, so jump way ahead, there were four victims. Huh. And then, to top it all off, if you look up the Axeman, there's a whole nother theory of an Axeman serial killer where they was, like, he was hitting, like, Louisiana in, like, 1917, I think. So, boy, in the 1900s, did we have a lot of axe murders. (laughs) (laughs) In, like, the early half. Yeah, I just feel like they can't all be connected, you know? I feel like that's a very common... This is going to sound horrible, but it's a very common way to kill someone during the time because it's easy access weapon. Yeah, it was a common access tool as well as the lighting. So, like, it's just what you're going to see. So, I'll sum up all the, like, parts for this Axeman murder theory. So, it's thought that the serial killer used train stations as a a quick entry and exit point into the towns where he committed his crimes. A couple of cases had the bloodhounds who would lose the scent at the railroad tracks. The mirrors, glass, and faces of each victim were covered with sheets or clothing items. The intruder or intruders used an oil lamp or some type of lamp from the homes, removed the chimney, and placed them somewhere within the homes with bent wicks for the oil lamps to minimize the amount of light. The murder weapons were axes, possibly a blunt pipe in that one, and then the other one is obviously unknown, Um, with the flat edge of the axe being used to beat the victim's head in. Uh, It's excessive. Food was seen on the tables or taken from the homes, and no other items were stolen, so the motives were not robbery. The intruder... (laughs) Yeah? I'm almost done. Okay. The intruder would wash his hands while in the home after the murders were committed, and the intruder either went 
for two family homes in one night or attempted to based off of other eyewitness reports of potential intruders who were scared off. So this whole theory of these cases came from a man named Matthew McClary. And he theorizes that the cases above were obviously committed by the same serial axe murderer. I agree. I think that he did a very nice, I'm assuming he did a very nice job of wrapping that up. There you are. There's all of your photos. There's all of your axe murders. There's your first case in October. What, what? What, This is a, you know, this is kicking it off right. You got some gore on the first day. Got it. Got it. That was a good case. I'd only ever heard of the... Oh my god, I'm going to say it wrong. Velisca. Velisca. That's the only one. Because anytime I'd heard it, it just focused on the Velisca axe murders, obviously, and not the theory connecting them all. So that was really good. Right. Thanks. Yeah, originally I was just going to do like the haunting there, and then I realized there were all these different things, and I was like, oh, this is a good case. Okay, I love that whenever you're researching, and then there's more, and you're like, there's another level. There's another level, and you just keep researching. You just feel it. Yeah, you yeah. feel it, too. You're just like, this is good. And then I you're like, like it. this is why people become detectives. <laughs> so they can this feel like this every day. <laughs> yeah, it was well, I really hope that everyone enjoyed this case as much as I enjoyed researching it. I mean, minus the gore, it is kind of a rough case, but it's interesting. It's intriguing. It's a very interesting case, yes. And I think that if anyone's listening to our podcast, they too are going to be like, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the gore is horrible, but that's yeah. a good case. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, there you go. First October case, and then next week, wait, Stoll, Kansas? Yeah, gateway to hell. Super. I love it. Lots of Kansas in the past two weeks. Yeah. The Midwest. Uh, We're just all about the Midwest right now. Flyover states. Hey, I can hate on the Midwest because I'm from the Midwest, so. I am not, but like. Yeah, you're from the South. Yeah, girl. <laughs> I'm the South. Okay, well, we hope that you'll join us next week for my Stall Kansas episode, and we hope you have a great first day of October, also known as the holy season. <laughs> All right. See you guys later. Bye. Bye.